Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. I think the most important lesson that I've learned is build confidence by constantly advocating for yourself. Because the more you do it in the little situations, the easier it will get when things get harder, which those situations will inevitably come up. And as we'll see, our guest today certainly has no shortage of confidence and has certainly been proactive in advocating for herself throughout her education and career. We first met Rebecca Alford 10 years ago when she was a high school student. And despite being visually impaired, she went on to win the Intel Science Competition, and we've been following her progress ever since. Now with a recently awarded PhD in chemical and biomechanical engineering and having started her first job, she will share her experiences with us. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Rebecca Alford. Going back to the point about a PhD is all about becoming an expert. Well, before I became an expert in science, I had to become an expert in myself and what I needed. And that gave me a lot of confidence to ask for uh, what I thought I needed in order to be successful. And that confidence is really important. And speaking from experience, a PhD is also about persistence and having long-range goals in mind that you could be committed to and sustain. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Rebecca. Well, we're here with Rebecca once again, and... For our listeners who haven't been with us for the past 10 years, the first time we interviewed you was almost exactly 10 years ago, Rebecca, when you were in high school, and now you're doing something very different. But maybe you can tell our listeners who you are and a little about yourself. Sure. Hi, I'm Rebecca. I am uh, currently living in New York City. I am visually impaired. I have a retinal condition that affects my nighttime vision as well as some of my daytime vision. And uh, yeah, when we first met, I was a high school student, and now I'm working as a research scientist. And how do they introduce you at conferences when you're giving your papers these days? They would introduce me as Dr. Rebecca Alford. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. So you started your new job just a couple of months ago. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, so I am a postdoctoral fellow at D.E. Shaw Research, which is a small private pharmaceutical company in New York City. And you call yourself a postdoctoral research fellow. Can you tell us where you got the doctorate? Yeah, I got my Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins. I graduated in June of 2020, uh, might I add, from my living room thanks to the pandemic. <laughs> and thanks to the pandemic, we were able to be in the audience for your thesis defense, which was so exciting. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. And when we first ran into you in 11th grade, you weren't married, but now you are. I am married and we have a uh, little puppy, Ollie. Uh, he's a joy to have. 
Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Rebecca's experiences in graduate school and upon entering the workforce. As we mentioned in the introduction, we talked to you many times through the years. The first time we met you was when you were a junior in high school and you went through and won the Intel science competition and went on to undergraduate school. And we talked about what some of those experiences were like for you as a visually impaired person. And I guess the last time we talked with you was when you were thinking about applying to graduate school and talking about some of the issues there. Can you give us an idea of what happened when you went to graduate school and how you were accepted with your colleagues and your professors? Yeah, so graduate school was definitely interesting because I think this is true whether or not you have a visual impairment. Graduate school is a very individual experience especially with a PhD, your entire goal is to work toward becoming an expert in your field. And because you're aiming to be the expert, it means that you're encountering a lot of problems and questions for the first time. From a scientific standpoint, I think that the vision related challenges were relatively easy to tackle because I had a lot of experience working with and asking for the technology I needed to be successful. I think the greater challenges were, I think maybe outside of the lab, like outside of doing my direct experimental work, there were some new situations that I hadn't thought of. And because you're working in a, a smaller setting and you're not working directly with a teacher or professor, um, I had to be more creative in, in persuading my uh, advisor to make some adaptations. Can you give us some examples of those? Yeah, so one common example is our lab had a group meeting every week. And the goal of that group meeting was that uh, we had a rotation and each student would share their research progress and that student would make their own slides. And unfortunately, sometimes when you're making slides in a hurry, the font size can be really small or the colors may not be good. Um, and even for me sitting very close, I couldn't see really anything. And I wasn't always able to get the students to email me the slides beforehand because uh, admittedly, I joined the crew of editing your slides until the last minute before group meeting. <laughs> that inevitably <laughs> happens. So I think uh, finding a way to make sure that I could still participate in access group meeting um, without people having to make too many changes, because again, you want to be understanding that they shouldn't need to have their slides ready two hours before, definitely presented a little bit of a challenge. Honestly, what ended up happening is my colleagues are just really understanding. And if I ask like, oh, do you mind describing this? I can't see it as well. Like they were more than happy to slow down and, and do so. And you learned many of those skills very early on. As our listeners may recall in our early interviews and through the years, you've always been very proactive about advocating for yourself and identifying solutions that will work for you. Yeah, I think going back to the point about 
a PhD is all about becoming an expert. Well, before I became an expert in science, I had to become an expert in myself and what I needed. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence to ask for what I thought I needed um, in order to be successful. And that confidence is really important because when you go to someone and you say, oh, I think I might need this, they may not be as willing to do a little bit of extra work to accommodate you. Whereas if you come with evidence and you say this particular modification has, can help me be more successful and here's why, they're much more incentivized to help you. Yes, and I think that's a great approach because you know best the solutions that are going to work for you. You really can't count on other people to know what's going to work best for you. Yeah. One issue we talked about a number of times through the years was you've been back and forth on the concept of navigating using a cane and your limited vision versus a guide dog. Can you talk a little bit about how you swung back and forth and what your final decision on that was? Yeah, so... One lesson that I learned in college was the kind of living situation that I would need to feel more comfortable and, and be more successful, just as a more independent person. So when I was choosing a graduate school, as well as when I moved there, I made sure that my apartment was in very safe walking distance and also on a route where Hopkins had a shuttle. So if you needed a ride home, they could take you back and forth, no problem. Hopkins campus is also not that large <laughs> and it's not as um, bustling as the city of Pittsburgh that I was in before. Uh, so it turned out that I was able to safely navigate the campus just with a cane um, or even during the daytime without a cane, just because I got so comfortable with it. I can tell you that um, that backfired when I moved to New York City because I lost some of my crucial O&M skills and needed a refresher. <laughs> but I... <laughs> you got too good where you were. Yeah, well, I walked the same route to the lab every day. I went to the same places. And then, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but I met my husband and he started driving me places. So I wasn't walking as many places as I normally would have. So, you know, you adapt to changing lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah, I know the feeling. I mean, I don't think I'm nearly as yeah. <laughs> good with a cane these days as I was when I was single. I mean, I'm often with either our kids or Nancy, and, you know, you tend to let those skills lapse a little. Yeah, though I, I will say, again, and I think learning from these experiences is so important because just as I had learned things from college, one of the things I learned from grad school is I really liked being in an urban area. It made me more independent. As small of a thing as it might sound, sometimes I want to go get my hair done and not have my husband waiting in the car for me. So I think, you know, moving to New York City became really important to us because it's such an urban area. And I was much more motivated to pick up those cane skills and, and be more independent just because that was a goal of mine. Did you get some additional O&M training or just have your husband walk you around the new areas of New York City in which you're living? I actually did get additional O&M training. When I moved back here, I was able to call New York State and they were able to um, get me a couple of O&M lessons just around my local neighborhood. We also intend to do more when I go back into the office to practice the commuting route because I haven't been doing much of that yet. 
Yeah, let me tell you, Andrew may be in for some additional involvement here. We both worked at Xerox on the same campus, which was enormous. I mean, a couple miles in each direction. And every once in a while, Pete would have new colleagues in a different building, or he'd have his office moved to a different building. And we would go out over lunchtime back and forth and back and forth and finding a route that would be safe and then teaching it to him. Yeah. There wasn't anybody else at Xerox who was going to do it for him. So that was my job. Yeah. I will say, uh, again, I, Andrew is amazing. He is so helpful in, in all things, not just vision related. And um, of course, I'm grateful to have him. I think it's a, a balance of finding when I want to depend on somebody and when I want to try to learn to do something myself. Well, one thing I've learned is before jumping in and helping, I always say, would you like help with that? And the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Hmm. Yeah. I will say, though, like sometimes I can be a little bit stubborn. So <laughs> really, someone might say, would you like help with that? And I might say, no. I might say, really? You sure you don't need help with that? <laughs> I think sometimes I need that extra push. There is a balancing act to be done there. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the interaction with your colleagues and some of the presentations. What about your interaction with the professors in the department? My advisor is amazing. <laughs> Wasn't is amazing. I had a very good relationship with him and he was always willing to help adapt to any situation that came up. Definitely, it was much harder working with the other professors um, for similar reasons in college that most people don't encounter someone with a visual impairment on a daily basis, much less in a selective graduate program. Yeah, it, it sometimes took a bit of extra arm twisting. It sometimes took a bit of patience. <laughs> and what kind of situations like that were related to your blindness as opposed to what research you were doing and how that was coming out? Well, I think it was mostly applicable in the beginning of graduate school when I was taking classes, making sure I could get accommodations for those classes. I mostly remember uh, sometimes professors would forget to um, bring in large materials and whatnot. It's, again, very similar to college, but because we only take courses in the first or second semester of grad school, it became less and less of an issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing your research itself, you mostly had under control because you're basically a computer programmer. You do a lot of computer programming, right? And that's very accessible for people with vision issues. Yeah, that is true. I will say one cool thing about graduate school and just broadening your network is I did get the opportunity to meet other visual impaired scientists. Some who only do computational work, some who even do work in the wet lab. And that definitely opened my mind to a lot more possibilities that there might be for doing research despite having a disability. I still don't want to do wet lab, but I am now in more of the camp that, you know, you can do it if you want to. Whereas if you asked me five years ago, I would have said, eh, not so much. Mm -hmm. Were these other visually impaired people you met in your graduate program or in your university or these people you networked with at conferences and other professional venues? Yeah, these are people that I networked with at conferences. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think I met any other visually impaired students during my time at Hopkins. That doesn't mean they weren't there. It just means that our paths never cross. You wouldn't have seen them. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the irony. But yeah, I, I was lucky to meet a number of uh, great mentors. One person who I think you guys actually connected me with, uh, Bonnie Swainer, who is an epidemiologist at Hopkins. Uh, her and I would meet for lunch every couple of months, and she became a really great mentor to me just in terms of navigating science as a person with a visual impairment, and especially when it came time to pick my next step after grad school. She works with a number of groups. Also, uh, most conferences have some kind of diversity committee, and they're working on making sure that disability falls under that diversity committee, and that's definitely uh, also led me to make a lot more new connections. It's great to be able to network with people who are facing similar issues, and that way, as you said, you can get some ideas of what can and can't be done, alternate ways of attacking problems or tasks that you need to do, et cetera. Yeah, I will say beyond just the practical aspect of getting other ideas, it's just a comfort to know that there are other people who are dealing with the same struggles because I think when there are so few of you, it can definitely rock your confidence. And, and that's something I, I always appreciated connecting with those people for that reason. And that's one reason we do the show, because there may be some other young visually impaired student who has visions of becoming a scientist and hearing your success story. Likewise, everybody else we've talked to and what they've managed to do I think gives people a lot of confidence as well as some ideas of how they can achieve what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the search for employment and how that worked? So I, I knew that I wanted to do what's called a postdoc position, which is in science, it's considered a transitional position. The reason for that is I, I knew I loved science and wanted to go into a technical field for my career but I wanted to get a little bit more project-based experience. I basically emailed a bunch of professors who I thought it would be like super cool to work in their lab. Um, I also uh, was contacted by a recruiter from DE Shaw, um, which is the company I'm at now. And yeah, I just kind of like went through the motions of interviewing and sending resumes and <laughs> Um, it was really stressful, <laughs> but then at the end, I luckily had some great options to choose from and ultimately decided to come here. Many visually impaired people struggle with whether one should tell prospective employees ahead of time about their visual impairment or wait until afterwards or some other point. What was your approach? I did not. So you showed up as a visually impaired person, and that was the first time they were introduced to the fact that you had a vision impairment? Well, okay, so actually, I think I played it differently at each interview, mm -hmm. now that I'm remembering. So the earlier interviews, I wasn't as quick to disclose. Definitely, I would ask like if I needed something to be read a little bit bigger or something to that extent, but it wasn't as much of an issue in really any of those beginning interviews. I think I tried at my last interview, I think because I knew that I was leaning toward another offer that I had already gotten. So I thought it was an interesting opportunity to try it out. I know it sounds ridiculous, 
yeah, the last, actually, sorry, the last two interviews I disclosed because I, I knew I had at least one offer. So I felt a little more comfortable giving it a try at one interview. It went great. And at the other interview, it was really awkward and uncomfortable. I guess it's one of these things you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I I wish that we lived in a world where I said, absolutely. I would feel a hundred percent comfortable disclosing. I mean, the reality also is that like my visual impairment is usually included in my biography, which is all over the internet. Oh, that's true. You have a good internet presence. Like somebody could have known, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Um, if they were looking, it was really important to me that the focus of the interview was my scientific skills and competency. Mm-hmm. I wanted the first question to be, why do you want this job? Not, oh, what is that cane thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was my approach when I applied for a job after getting my PhD in graduate school. I didn't tell anybody until they offered me an interview and I said, okay, when you pick me up at the airport, I'm the guy with the cane. Yeah. When I got hired at Xerox, I asked them after I got hired about, you know, what was their impression all of a sudden this blind guy showing up. And they said, well, you know, actually, we didn't think about it much. We figured if you were good enough and smart enough to get a PhD, you could probably handle it when you got here. So I completely agree. And I believe that the places that I was strongly considering, it wouldn't have mattered if I had disclosed. But in the moment when you're applying for a job and you're already anxious about trying to figure out what your next step is. I think that was one anxiety that I wanted to eliminate to, mm-hmm. to make it more comfortable. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, again, it's a personal choice. Yeah. yeah. And you never know the reaction you're going to get from the employer. Yeah. When we were finishing graduate school and applying for our first jobs, which wound up being at Xerox and we stayed there for decades, the so-called job interview that you went on was an entire day proposition. They'd fly you in. You'd have dinner with them. You'd get up the next morning. You'd spend all day with them, breakfast, lunch, interview, 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 give a presentation. What's it like these days? It's the same. It's exhausting. It's very exhausting. Though not as exhausting as graduate school interviews. Because graduate school interviews are like multiple days and then you go to many of them. Like job interviews, you you probably go to less. And usually by the time you're looking for a job, you've more than not likely nailed down the location. So you're not flying back and forth across the country all the time. We've interviewed you at each transition in your education from high school to college, from college to graduate school. And at each transition, you mentioned how important various criteria were for you in choosing a location. How did that come into play this go-round? One thing that happened when I was applying for postdocs is some people believe that for your postdoc, you should just go anywhere, like regardless of the location. And one of the things that I had shared with some of my mentors is that I really wanted a metro urban area first because I wanted to be closer to family, but especially because I wanted more independence. And that was a point that not all of my mentors resonated with because they didn't necessarily know what it was like to not have hundred percent access to a car um, and what it would be like to live in a 
a not urban location without a car. And I'm really glad that I stuck to my guns on that one because I would have been really unhappy if they convinced me to go to like some amazing professor's lab that was in a town that I couldn't navigate. Because even though that would have been an amazing experience, I would have been unhappy and felt restricted. So I think that part is just as important for the job search as the specific place that you end up. I also realize not everyone always has a choice, but um, if you can have a choice, that's something that you can prioritize. And that's a good point. As you said, most people just look at the job and the prestige or the money of the job, and they don't take sort of a holistic approach. When I got my uh, job interview at Xerox, I told them that in addition to interviewing the staff and people that I might work with and for, I wanted to see a little bit of the town. And of course, the day got busy and that never happened. And they finally sent me an offer and they said, you know, do you want the job? (laughs) And I said, well, I never got a chance to see the town. And I really feel uncomfortable moving there without seeing the town. And they flew me up again and just spent the day touring me around town so I could see what it was like, where I might live, how I could get to and from work, to and from the supermarket, et cetera. Yeah. So that is important. Safety and and feeling comfortable is definitely underrated. (laughs) That's something that I've learned throughout my experiences up to here. And I'm I'm glad that that's something I thought about because it's much nicer now. (laughs) Yeah, great. And what an inspirational story. It was a pleasure for Nancy and us to befriend Rebecca and follow her progress over the past 10 years. It just goes to show you that if you have a vision and something you want to accomplish, if you put your mind to it, work hard, and you're persistent, it can happen. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to get in touch with Rebecca Alford if you have any questions. And just as she has been extremely generous with her time and her thoughts and her feelings with us on this show, she didn't mention it, but over the years, she has also mentored many younger students and been very generous with her time in that effort as well. If people wanted to connect with you, if they had questions about your experiences, either going through school or your professional experiences, would they be able to contact you? Yeah, absolutely. And how would they do that? They would email me at rfalford12 at gmail.com. And you said you have a web presence. Do you have a blog or are you just on LinkedIn and other social media? I'm on LinkedIn. I don't really do social media. <laughs> it probably makes me sound like a hermit. But I guess because um, I work a lot with the Hertz Foundation and a couple of other groups, my bio is posted on those web pages. So when you Google me, that's usually what comes up. They'll find you. <laughs> and you mentioned the Hertz Foundation. You neglected that in your introduction of yourself. That is a very prestigious fellowship that you had through graduate school. I am a Hertz fellow, and I'm very, very grateful to the Hertz Foundation for uh, helping me through graduate school. The connections I made in that community are just invaluable. In addition to having Rebecca's contact information in our show notes, 
if people want to connect with her. We'll have links to all the previous episodes in which we interviewed Rebecca. So you can hear the whole story yourselves if you want to. Just go to www.eyesonsuccess.net and look for those show notes. That's it for show number 2112. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about why it's so important to understand your body. Krishna Washburn is a blind professional ballet dancer and an instructor who runs Dark Room Ballet. She believes that visually impaired people could benefit from having a better understanding of how their bodies and body parts work. And we will speak with her about her instructional methods as well as how her online classes work. We hope you'll join us next week for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.